Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dr. MC's Self-Care Cabaret Podcast. I'm Teresa Molito Connors, a doctoral level educational administrator and mental health practitioner focused on helping you, our world's helpers. Every day, we have a choice to prioritize our well-being, to incorporate reflection, recovery, renewal, and resilience strategies into our lives. However, those of us who step up and serve our communities in healthcare, education, nonprofit spaces, and more can struggle with putting ourselves first. I've seen this firsthand, and it's a challenge. Enter Dr. MC's Self Care Cabaret Podcast. Here, we have real, intimate conversations with leading experts passionate about accessible, sustainable self care in its 10 domains. It's all about the hard work we can take on together to find our spotlight. Before we dive into today's interview with a very special guest, I want to talk a little bit about reclaiming space. This has come up as a theme for me recently um, over the summer as I'm feeling a craving to do ballet again. As folks may or may not know, I've been dancing since I was about three years old, which at this point is about 37 years ago. And it's always something that has brought me joy. And I did dance professionally for years and did a lot of choreography And I trained pretty high levels for ballet. I'm blessed to be in the greater Boston area, having access to Boston Ballet, as well as Ballet Theater of Boston, and other semi-professional companies around where I trained. Ballet is definitely not, uh, how should we say it, uh, size-inclusive and very welcoming of body diversity uh, industry and arena. So I, I realized pretty quickly around the age 15 that I wasn't really built like a ballerina, but I loved it. And I was, if I do say so myself, rather good. However, anyway, fast forward, kind of got away from ballet. And that's actually how I found musical theater, which is also a major love of mine. But as I'm finding myself now, I don't know, just all of a sudden craving a return to ballet, but on my terms this time. So I used to dance on point with the right up on my tippy toes. If you don't know what point shoes are, that's what they are. Don't call them toe shoes, please. And I've had a pair, the last pair I bought was around the time I started my eating disorder recovery journey, so that was about eight years ago, and unfortunately that pair no longer fits me, my body is a lot larger than it was then in my healing journey, and I recently had a point shoe fitting, I know, how exciting is that, I'm pumped to receive them, I went with a company called Gainer Minden, who is known for making point shoes that go up to a little bit larger, they typically, um, outfit male dancers in point shoes as a male dance troupe that they make the company point shoes for them. So I'm hopeful that they'll fit and I'm just feeling really excited. And this has, you know, sparked me to kind of start doing some bar work again and just building up my strength to make sure I'm ready for the arrival of the point shoes. So maybe think about that in your own life. What is something that maybe you used to do that you're craving to do again, you would love to do again? How can you invite that back into your life? I'm not saying everybody should try to do point again, but maybe. And just even just being back on the bar has just been really fun and just building myself up. I've been doing some exercises in the water as well to just make sure my legs and ankles and feet are ready. And I'm just so hopeful and praying that these point shoes fit because I'm going to be really disappointed if they don't. But we'll come up with a plan B, whatever that is. So again, just think about maybe a place where you can reclaim some space for yourself. See how it feels. Start small, start slow, and see how it feels. And I'd love to hear about your experience, too, if you decide um, to try something that you haven't done in a while. And now, without further delay, I'd like to introduce today's guest, who is the fabulous Fiona Sutherland, joining us from Australia. Yes, she is our first intercontinental guest. How cool is that? Fiona is an accredited practicing dietitian and director of the Mindful Dietitian Living and Working on Melbourne. With more than 20 years working in the areas of body image, eating disorders, and sports nutrition, Fiona is committed to weight-inclusive and trauma-informed approaches in the service of disrupting harmful and dominant health and body narratives, integrating these into clinical work, supervision and training with dietitians and health professionals. 
She is also the author of the mini book, Vitamin A to Z, and host of the podcast, The Mindful Dietitian. She teaches across master level dietetic training programs at several different universities, specifically in counseling skills and weight inclusive approaches to dietetics. Fiona is a mindfulness practitioner and yoga teacher, bringing a particular emphasis on safety, embodiment, mindfulness, and self-compassion into her work, training, and life. I have been following Fiona for many years. I first learned about her when I started my eating disorder recovery journey, and I'm just thrilled to chat with her today. And here is our conversation. We are up and running. Thank you so much, Fiona, for joining me today. It's so wonderful to be here with you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, this is very exciting. I first uh, was introduced to your work a long time ago, about eight or so years ago at this point, by Anna Sweeney. When I was starting my um, eating disorder healing journey, I had the privilege and pleasure of working with Anna as my dietitian. And she had your little mindful eating cards deck that she would which at that time I believe your business was body positive Australia is that correct that's right Um, and she had it and we would use it in sessions and I loved it I was like I love this deck so I went of course and had to buy my own and I bought actually I think another which now I feel like these are vintage these are vintage decks because you've done some rebranding and have a new um this is definitely the body positive Australia versions and um I have I think you had done a, a like a body positivity one and then the mind flight two of them and um they're awesome they're great they're great decks so thank you for creating those <laughs> oh thank you so much Teresa that's really generous of you and of course for those of you who are familiar with Anna Sweeney she is one of the best humans that has ever 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 existed mm. yeah I would agree with that she pretty much I mean I don't say this lightly but she kind of saved my life yep. she 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 really helped me. Like I owe her so much and she's so even still like we're still connected and um, she's been a guest on the podcast. We've gone live together. She's, she's great. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I believe you. I do believe that she has saved uh, many people in many different ways as well. Yeah. She's a special one. Yeah. Yeah. She's awesome. So it's so awesome though to connect with you. I just wanted to give you that little backstory as to how, um, how I kind of stumbled upon you in the first place. We have Anna to thank for that. So I always ask my guests, the first question is how do you like to practice self-care? Yes. I really appreciate this question. When I was, um, listening back to some of your podcast episodes, my favorite form of self-care is to have fun. Ooh. I don't think anybody said that yet. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, um, my life is on the busier end of things. And so it feels kind of obvious for me to say something restorative, something restful, something that has some spaciousness in it. But the reality is what feels so good to me and what feels so restorative is having fun. So Mm -hmm. some of that is by myself. Some of that is with other people, maybe my family, um, often with friends, um, exploring new places, even if it's a new restaurant, a new cafe, a new walking trail, um, being with my dog, you know, having fun for me feels incredibly restorative. And I think it's my richest form of self-care. Yeah, I love that. And I really don't think anyone else has said that as an answer. So I love it. We're all about fun here at the Self-Care Cabaret. And we, we talk a lot about, you know, joy and joyful movement and what that means for people. But just in general, one of the things I always say, I'm like, if it doesn't feel good, don't do it. Like, you don't have to do it. So I just love that. Like self-care, it's fun. It's whatever that means for you and make it fun. And that's OK. And you have permission to have fun. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think what what, um, connecting with fun really does is it really brings us back, it encourages us or invites us back into our bodies, first of all. Mm -hmm. The second thing it does is it brings in like a childlike quality of curiosity and vibrancy and uh, connection, even if that's with oneself or with nature or with pets or, you know, the earth or whatever beings that you like to connect with and just gives you an extra dimension to your to your day or your week or your month 
And I also want to be thoughtful that, you know, fun is something that can be tenuous for people as well. You know, having fun can Mm. feel like something that's out of reach or something we haven't had permission to or can somehow feel like a luxury. So I don't take that lightly. Um, And also for me, it's something that I really, really like to engage in regularly regular daily yeah daily if possible even if it's trying a different flavor of coffee or um walking a new track that i haven't done before um you know for me that is fun that is really fun or calling someone who i haven't called in a couple of years just to reconnect for me that is really i regard that as fun you know um the height of fun for me would be traveling for sure and and kind of exploring new places i've just come back from colorado um spending some time over there for work and that was so fun like it was the peak of fun it was awesome (laughs) that's awesome i love how you you know kind of broke it down like it can be something simple and something small and it doesn't have to be this big you know travel to another country like that doesn't have to be that it can be a new flavor in your coffee or taking a different route like I love that I think that's a great reminder for folks and maybe if if fun does feel a little out of reach that's a good way to start so can you tell folks um, just a little bit maybe about the work that you do and how you would describe that Yeah, sure. Um, So I trained as a dietitian about 25 years ago, and most of that time I've been working clinically. So when I say clinically, I mean with um, other humans, with, uh, you know, uh, coming to me with various um, conditions and um, ways that they would like to be supported. Probably about 20 of those years I've specialised in disordered eating, eating disorders, uh, body image, Uh, I'm also a sports dietitian as well. So I just do a little bit of work with high performance athletes. Uh, That's actually something I'm really passionate about because of the intersecting nature of anti-fat bias and weight stigma Mm. and, and body image and eating disorders. So that's a little kind of side project of mine, I guess you would say. And over the past 10 years or so, I've really moved into kind of education and teaching Uh, mostly of other dietitians in those subjects I named before. Um, And then also supervision, which is really the the collaborative um, way of overseeing the safety uh, and effectiveness of our practice as dietitians. So these are really precious conversations that we have with our colleagues where we discuss the people who we're working with in really respectful, deep and meaningful ways so that we do our work better and that we show up as better humans. Yeah, so that's what I love to do the most. Yeah, beautiful. And certainly you mentioned the high endurance athletes. So I, I grew up dancing and the ballet world in particular is not very welcoming, I would say, of any type of body diversity or anything. And um, that's where I think, uh, you know, in some of my eating disorder recovery dance I had gotten I'd use exercise as a as a purging method. And so dance and, and ballet got kind of all twisted up into all of that and uh, really warped perception of what joyful movement used to mean to me and then what it became and then kind of reclaiming that back has been a major theme in my life recently and kind of like no I am going to still do ballet on my terms and how I want to do it and whatever (laughs) so it just made me think of that when you were talking about the, the, the sports world. I love that so much Teresa it's ballet is one of those um arts, activities, sports, professions, where the stereotype is really leading the pack. And when we can reclaim what it means to dance in whatever way, shape or form that our body is in at the moment, and also how that expression, what that expression means to us. And so it might not mean like a white tutu and point shoes, and nor should it. That is not all that even classical ballet is, let alone broader dance, right? And so reclaiming what a particular style means for us based on what we have the capacity um, to do right now in the body that we have is such a beautiful way to, again, kind of this um, links 
back to what we were talking about with self-care and fun, it, it not only brings us back into a, a collaboration with the body that we have now, but also um, brings us back into a little bit more of our childlike part of us that mm. really loves just to move for fun um, and is a little less serious than our adult selves. Absolutely. I love that. So can you talk a little bit about mindful eating and intuitive eating? Because I feel like, I mean, I, I know the difference, but I want to make sure that our listeners understand the difference. I do feel like they get interchanged a lot and they're not the same thing. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that, um, you know, over the past 10 to 20 years, there's been a lot of language um, and a lot of words and a lot of phrases that have increasingly been seen in the eating disorder recovery world, in the body image world, in the fat and body positivity world, or whatever language that you like to be used. Just noting that some of these words have been kind of co-opted by people who ostensibly kind of look like me, you know, smaller bodied white women. Um, But that Mindful eating is really much more about bringing our attention into the present moment and using our senses to um, explore with curiosity um, the eating experience. That's probably, if I was to make up a rough definition off the top of my head, that would probably be it. So it's really, um, it's it's using our senses with curiosity, um, with without judgment or with less judgment. I try not to use mm-hmm. too many binary words, but, you know, with less judgment and more curiosity. Um, and noticing the present moment as it changes over time. And the wonderful thing about eating is that it does change over time. Flavours, textures, tastes, um, even colours change over time, even if it's over the space of cooking something, you know, cheese browns, for example, or fruits change colour and texture if you leave them out, for example. And all, all of that can be ways that we can kind of flex our mindfulness muscles to to practice how it feels to notice that present moment so that's kind of mindful eating um and i and i will say and teresa you'll be very aware of this is that both mindful eating and intuitive eating have both very much been co-opted by diet culture and been taken along and popped on the bandwagon of you know doing this to control your body doing this to you know, um, to change the body in some way, shape or form. So I just want to note that that's um, it's very much, you know, it, it's a sneaky way that both of these terms have been, you know, put on, put, you know, on that wagon. Um, I don't, do not subscribe to that uh, one one bit. And, um, and so I really want to e- explain these two things in its most loyal way, I guess. Um, sure. Intuitive eating has aspects of mindful eating in it. So if I was to say, you know, in what order they belong, I would say intuitive eating is more an umbrella term and then mindful eating kind of belongs as one of the aspects of intuitive eating. So many people will recognise the words intuitive eating as the 10 principles that were developed by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Retch many years ago in the late 1990s. Actually, they had their first version of their book, Uh, The latest version um, of the book only came out a couple of years ago and they did major, major kind of updates to the book. So anybody that has earlier versions of that and feels like, oh, there are parts of this that are not kind of on point for 2023, then you are correct. They're not on point. And Elise and Evelyn would agree with you. Um, These are two people that are to to my mind um, and to my observation, very committed to their own growth and have made major changes to the book um, and yeah. have, have gone to great lengths to, to really aim to demonstrate their own growth. And, I mean, there's nothing like a book to show your own growth, is there, because it's right there. It's on people's shelves. Um, and and I, I hope... But for many people, for me, it's been a really nice way to say, oh, these two people who are truly leaders in our field, oh, I see where they've come from and where they are now and that growth is possible, making mistakes is possible, tripping over things is possible and that we can do better when we learn better. So with all that being said, um, intuitive eating for me, I like to point towards the 10 principles, which are actually very expansive 
Um, a lot of people kind of shorten it to, you know, kind of hungerfulness, appetite, mindfulness, mindful eating being kind of the crux of intuitive eating. But actually, the way I understand intuitive eating is much more expansive. And so it brings into play the way we think about food, our memories about food, eating in our body, um, our feelings about our experiences, about our memories, about our body, about food, etc. And then also um, the perceptions and our inner experiences um, and, you know, kind of bringing all that together to kind of make sense of how we have intersected with food, eating and our bodies over time. Because Teresa, I'm, I'm, I feel like maybe you're similar, but for so many people, this is fraught, it is complex, and it is layered. And so what yeah, intuitive yeah. eating, what the principles do, is just give us some guideposts. It's not the be-all and end-all, and I don't think even Evelyn and Elise would say it's the be-all and end-all, but for many people, it can be a starting point, just to start to kind of draw apart and sort out some of the things that have been kind of really problematic for us and stopped us living full and meaningful lives. So that's the that's the way I would describe the two as being kind of um, separate but connected. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that. And, you know, intuitive eating kind of being that larger umbrella framework and mindful eating maybe being a, a piece of that. And certainly, you know, if, if folks are listening to this and they're like, oh, I saw so-and-so, some celebrity talking about intuitive eating, eh, it was likely, <laughs> it was likely not, there was probably a diet wrapped in a lie of intuitive eating. That has been oh, so much of that, which is infuriating or even, you know, not even celebrities. I see other, you know, folks that, you know, influencers or even just people on social media that are, you know, entrepreneurs and whatnot. And they're like, oh, now I'm doing intuitive eating. I'm like, no, you're not because you're trying to actively lose weight. Those two things are not, not <laughs> those compatible. Two things don't go together. Nope. No. Nope. So if we stay with mindful eating, maybe as kind of a starting point for folks, I'm wondering what is maybe your top, I don't know, three tips or things um, that you would encourage someone to do to kind of maybe get them started with mindful eating? Yeah. Well, because mindful eating, if we think about, you know, mindful eating, the, the first word is mindful, you know, mindfulness. So the first place that I would really encourage people to start is to become more familiar with how it feels to bring our attention into the present moment. If mindfulness feels new or it feels scary or it feels different or confronting in some way, shape or form, and it does for many people. So if that is, if you're listening to this and thinking, oh, it's not for me, I've tried it, I don't like it, it doesn't feel good, please know that you're in really, really good company there and that mindfulness is not... Um, often, especially at first for people, this kind of zen, peaceful, awesome experience. It actually, because because it is really common for all humans to, to aim to escape the present moment, and sometimes we will use food for that. We'll use, um, by, by saying using food, I don't just mean eating food, I also mean avoiding food as well, mm. you know. So that is still the use of food to manage our kind of thoughts and feelings and, and our experiences in our body as well. Um, because that's really, really common, bringing ourselves back into the present moment to come into touch with our feelings, our perceptions, our the sensations that are going on in my body can actually feel really, really scary. And so my first tip would be if you are going to practice this, um, Take it really gently and slowly and really compassionately with yourself. That, that would be my first tip before you even start anything else. When we're, you know, if you wanted to say, for example, set an intention or something, well, decide how you want to do this or whatever language you want to use, um, go gently, slowly and compassionately and in an open-hearted way where that if you come across something that feels confronting or scary, please know you're not alone in that and that, you know, using your breath just to make plenty of space for that. And then my second tip would be start using your senses first before you head to food at all. So um, by senses, I, I guess one of the senses is taste, of course, but start maybe even by using um, hearing and sight 
and even, you know, touch. So what can I touch? Um, what can I see? What can I hear just in this present moment? And practice rotating around even just those three um, for at least a couple of days, say maybe four or five times a day, or maybe, you know, once an hour for five times a day, you know, just, just dotting it in, into your day um, or even once a day, once a week, whatever you can start with is fine. So I would say practice how it feels to shift your attention and your, your awareness into the present moment, because that's the muscle flex of mindfulness. Yeah. So it's not, it's actually the, the tricky part of mindfulness is not coming into the present moment it's staying in the present moment without flitting off into something else. When when we can kind of flex that muscle and move between things a little bit more easily, it gives us confidence that we can come back to whatever it is that we're trying to kind of run away from. And often this is part of therapy as well, you know, is is if we have the privilege to be able to engage in therapy, a therapist, a dietitian will almost certainly be <laughs> kind of coaching you with um, with this with this kind of stuff because often um, the core of our suffering and our pain is our running away from the present moment. Um, and then it would only be my third step that I would say, you know, test test it out with food. You know, see see if you can. Um, maybe select a food that feels in the in the zone of safe for you whatever that means um and just trying a little bit and, and notice the taste and then just and then just let it go come back to it again um you know so a lot of people kind of skip steps one and two and kind of almost skip over three and go for like steps 10 11 and 12 where they want us like <laughs> and eat you know a whole meal slowly mindfully intentionally and i'm like oh sweetie come back to step one come back to step one can you can you approach this with kindness do you have kindness in your heart towards yourself as you're doing this because if you don't come back to step one um if you have control in your heart if you have power like power over in your heart then it's not going to be the activity for that for that moment you know come back another time um so it's really coming with the intention um you know practice 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 flexing around those different sensory and only then start with food starting with you know, in the in your zone, and then gradually kind of moving out to something um, a little bit more challenging. Whether that's an amount of food that's challenging, type of food that's challenging, um, or something that helps you kind of just stretch your edges a little bit. Because staying in our zone of safety doesn't help us grow, doesn't help us change, doesn't help us sure. you know flex into the life that we want to be having. Um, so it's a, so it's a little bit of both. It's about starting gently and then very very gradually kind of easing into you know the edges of what's possible. Yeah, I really like how you broke that down from like separating mindfulness from the act of eating. So almost taking it a step back, because I think people are quick to kind of, well, mindful eating, well, I got to be eating. Like that's, <laughs> but it actually taking it back and breaking it down and making sure you've really cultivated that sense of mindfulness and understand what that means to be mindful in your body before, because food is complicated. I mean, my relationship with food has been complicated my whole life. And even now as someone who identifies in recovery and no longer, you know, in active eating disorder behavior, I still find it challenging from time to time and, and, you know, other relationships, you know, other members of my family also struggle. So that's, you know, there's always that kind of dynamic. And, um, so even before you get to the act of eating, really making sure you're embodying mindfulness, I think is a great, great tip. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Yeah, you're welcome. It's always really tempting for us to want to be somewhere where we're not, including in our own <laughs> progress and growth. And it just makes sense as humans, we, we want things to feel good. And, you know, when we can start more gently, compassionately, we'll actually get where we want to go probably quicker than before. Did you hear the news about our exciting new offering from the Self Care Cabaret? We're calling it Talk Back. If you're familiar with the theater space, you may have participated in a Talk Back before. After a performance, the cast and crew will come back on stage to chat with the audience and answer questions. Think of it as a casual, guided discussion. Inspired by this and by popular interest, we've come up with a talkback for the Self Care Cabaret podcast. 
Groups will listen to a podcast episode or two of their choosing. Then I'll come and lead your discussion either in person or virtually of those episodes, expanding on the big ideas. It's a great option for groups looking for short, impactful professional development or smaller teams looking to get an introduction to self-care and well-being. We have done a few of these so far, and let me say, they have been so much fun. So if you're interested in bringing a talk back to your group or organization, email podcast at drmcselfcare.com. And now, on with the show. So let's talk a little bit about diet culture, because that kind of makes all of this challenging, right? Fat phobia, diet culture, and it's just, it's everywhere. And it's obnoxious. But so how can someone maybe, I don't know, start to spot like diet culture things and maybe warning signs and and begin to reject it? Yes. Well, you're spot on in saying that it's, um, yeah, it, it, it is, it's everywhere. And I think part of the issue of spotting it is that it's sneaky and that mm. it's kind of hidden in things, under things. It's almost like one of those pictures that I remember from the 1990s, you know, where you have to slightly cross your eyes to see the image come out of it. What was that called? Magic eyes. Magic eye. Yes, the magic (laughs) eye. It's almost a bit like that where um, I just, I literally just thought of that then. I like that analogy. (laughs) Yeah. It's a good one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, It is. Thank you. Thank you, um, self. That was, (laughs) that was a good one. So it's almost like that where we need to be much more present and we need to almost, I mean, if we're to stick with this metaphor, we need to kind of focus in a slightly different way and almost like if you think about the magic eye, you almost need to soften your gaze, don't you? You know, it almost you almost need to soften in order for the image to kind of come forward. And I think it's a little bit like that with diet culture. The way I describe diet culture is that it's baked in it's like the egg in your cake where it's it's not an omelet it's baked in (laughs) so you know it's not like we can taste the egg and we can you know it's it becomes part of it so it becomes part of sport it becomes part of education it becomes part of our working world our relationships um it becomes part of events like, you know, um, weddings and pregnancies and deaths and births and everything in between. So it's kind of like this this baked in hidden messaging around who we should be, how we should show up, what we should be eating, how we should be looking, what we should be doing, what activities, you know, um, we should be engaging in. And it's very much tied into our worth and value. So it kind of, um, yeah, the, the layers of it are really kind of complex and especially the way that it impacts individuals is very complex. So um, as you are very well aware, Teresa, throughout your kind of lived experience, you know, people are impacted to different degrees depending on their um, degree of power and privilege in the world or um, being disempowered and um, being having experiences of oppression. So I think that's the one thing with diet culture that is even more sneaky and more troubling, like seriously troubling, is that um, it protects people who already are more privileged in some ways and further hurts and harms and disempowers those who have the the least privilege. And in some ways, that's the way it's designed, right? It's designed to keep the hierarchies in place in ways Mm. that are like, just, just disgusting. Like it's, yeah, it makes, it makes, actually makes me really angry. (laughs) When I think about it, it makes me very angry and upset. And that's why people like you and I are here talking about this, aren't we? So that we can help people to understand, you know, so, so diet culture kind of lives in the language that we use. It lives in, um, the you know the the food based messaging exercise and movement based messaging um you know we we can see it and the interesting thing i'll be interested to ask you teresa when you first started spotting it what did you notice differently that you were like oh whoa i hadn't noticed that before like what did you notice oh wow 
trying to think for a second. Like so much. And I feel like, like if I go back to thinking about when I started to kind of come out of the fog, shall we say, yeah. and started, <laughs> the working, light of started, <laughs> started working with Anna, really. So we're going back about, you know, eight years ago. And as she started to say things to me um, about, you know, the body and how movement should be fun and all these things. And like, you know, if you know, you might gain weight in your recovery. Like I remember, you know, I, I, I instantly pretty much fell in love with working with her and I trusted her like pretty much from day one. And I just remember like feeling like my whole world, though, was shattering like underneath yeah. me. Yeah. And, but she had that steady hand. But I, I just felt like so many things. It was like, oh wow. And then really realizing that, um, you know, just how much of it is ingrained in media and, and pop culture and movies, and then starting to think about it and being like, you know, you know, we think representation, um, it's rare to see a fat body, like as a star in a, in a show or a disabled body even. And now, like when I notice those things, and this has been, you know, over the past several years too, just being like, I get so excited. <laughs> like, Oh my God. Or even, you know, like women like Lizzo, like Lizzo is incredibly talented and gorgeous and she lives in a larger body. And like, when I see Lizzo, I'm like, yeah, like that gives me hope. Like seeing somebody that has a body like mine doing really cool things and like rocking it out so like having that but then you know it's just it's so twisted up in so many things like I also work in a school I'm a I'm an administrator for special education and they were they're weighing kids in elementary school and like in the the American pediatrics guidelines about obesity and children like it's just it's such a mess (laughs) we have a lot of work to do Fiona Yes, we do. Well, well, lucky you and I are having this conversation so that hopefully one more person can pass on the love. Absolutely. Yeah, but it's and it's kind of funny, too. I, you know, as I mentioned, some members of my family, my mom in particular, has um, struggled with weight her whole life. And she's, you know, diet after diet. And so like that was very normal to me growing up. My dad is also a larger man and you know, so whatever. So I, I never wanted to be fat like that. I like had like major fat phobia, um, and kind of understanding like, no, it's okay. It's okay that, um, that my body is larger. Like I'm still me. I can still do all these things. And like, but coming to that realization. And then I remember like with my mom, it was a couple of summers ago, um, you know, and she's, she's pretty good. Like she's not, and she's not one to be like pushing it down my face or making it ever really making any body comments or, or anything like that. But it's still like, it was the ingrained messaging, whether it was said out loud or, or not. But anyway, recently, you know, a few summers ago, I was talking to my mom and I remember saying to her, she was talking about her body and weight and maybe being dissatisfied. And I was like, I think you're ready now for intuitive eating. Aww. And it was like, it was a really beautiful moment. Yeah. And, and she was like, and I'm like, yep, like you're, you haven't been ready, but I actually feel like you're ready now to start mm-hmm. understanding this. And even still, like she'll go, you know, she'll say to me, you oh, know, this is so hard for me. Like you got to understand this is 60 something years of programming here in my brain and things, you know, things have changed so much. And, yeah. you know, back then, you know, when she was a kid, you couldn't get plus size clothes. And like, I certainly now like those wonderful brands that make amazing clothes for my body body that I love. And like, that's amazing that I can afford that and that they even exist in the world. And, you know, as my mom growing up, she didn't really have access to fun clothes and, and different things too. And so like things have just changed so much, but there's still so much to go. (laughs) Yes, I agree. And so I think for, you know, probably people in the, I'm going to make a broad sweep here. So, you know, forgive me for people who, you know, are feeling like, Oh, that age group is, um, that's, you know, a bit off point there, but I would say the kind of the 60 plus roughly age group, uh, you know, it's, I think it's worthwhile holding this age group both with compassion and also, you know, with, with a steady hand because, um, and, and it's, it's not about forgive and forget. I I don't think it's about that. I think it is about holding a steady hand and us doing our own work so that we can um, engage with our aunts, uncles, grandparents, um, parents, and people in that generation with 
some kindness that that is all that they have known, like literally all yeah. I have known. And this is transgenerational. It's not just them. It's also their parents and their parents and their parents. And, you know, they could have been migrants, refugees, you know, people who, um, you know, have experienced trauma, transgenerational trauma, um, food insecurity, um, you know, racism and homophobia and all of the things that, you know, if, if you think about the previous generation, that being a being a trans person or um, being queer, goodness me, like there's, there, if you did, if you were open, then your life was not in general of great quality because of the pervasive attitudes of that generation. And so I think that that generation has a lot of work to do in terms of their own internalised stuff around, not only around um, food, eating, body shape and size, but also around the different ways that humans show up, uh, you know, gender, sexuality, race, culture, religion, all that kind of stuff. And so I think we have an opportunity to hold those people both in compassion and also in steady account like nobody wants racist fat phobic grandma at their christmas table like that's not cool it's not cool for for um grandkids and it will be the grandkids that are like grandma you can't say that or grandma you know we, we don't talk that way about bodies it's going to be the kids it's <laughs> which is so awesome and you know grandma can do with it <laughs> right <laughs> No, a hundred percent. And, you know, my mom, I realize that, you know, my mom's lived experience is very different than mine. And, you know, I remember when the American pediatrics guidelines came out and I was doing some work on it here with another group and, um, I was venting about it to my mother and she's like, you got to understand. She's like, if these guidelines existed when I was a kid, she's like hundred percent, I would have been a candidate for bariatric surgery and probably would have my, she's like my mother my grandmother probably would have followed through with it because you just yeah. believe like she wouldn't have questioned it. They mm -hmm. would have wanted to, you know, to help my mom or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, just all, you know, so there's a lot of that, you know, like she, she remembers being put on her first diet at like a very young age and just all these, all these things that are just sad. So it's, a, I feel like the work that, you know, I do and my healing also helps to heal the generational line. Cause I come from a long line of, of women and men who have struggled with their bodies. I mean, both my grandparents um, were larger and um, as well. So it is deeply rooted for whatever reason in my history. <laughs> yeah. You're survivors. Like you're, you're from a surviving genetic line. And that's, that's what it sounds like to me, although I, I really want to note that it doesn't always feel like that. It feels mm, like, sure. oh, this is, you know, particularly because of the pervasive narrative around fat kills us. No, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it, it's, it's a survival. It's definitely a survival part of our genetics. And that, you know, the ways that we can break those cycles for future generations and make fat not only acceptable, but something that's really celebrated and something that mm -hmm. is kind of just, quote unquote, another version of diversity in the world. It's like, right. yep, people exist in so many different bodies and there is no hierarchy to that. That's the one thing that diet culture really has us believe is that diversity is something most people can come to. Like they're like, yeah, sure, I can I can see diversity, but it's, it's when it gets to the hierarchy, that's when people start to get a little bit tripped up where it's like, and some bodies are quote unquote healthier than others. And because we put healthiness on a hierarchy, which is all kinds of high level messed up, that um, it demotes larger bodies, it demotes disabled bodies, it devotes um, those who are neurodivergent, you know, and, and all the different beautiful, brilliant ways that, you know, bodies and brains show up in the world, that it's the hierarchies that are, that are the issue um, and the way in which we subscribe to those hierarchies and, and in, for the most part, probably unintentionally kind of pass that along. So if we, if we can be circuit breakers and we can be cycle breakers, um, then that is an extremely important role for our generation to be um, embodying for the next generation coming through, for sure. Yeah, I love that. Disruptive. I like to think of myself as a disruptor, but I like circuit breaker too. 
<laughs> cycle yes. breaker. Yeah. And I do think about that too, you know, in my own work and what that meant. And even just being a, a woman with a PhD, like there, if we go look at education, like I know, Why? you know, mem- women in my family didn't have the opportunity to go further their education. They were housewives or too poor, or had other things going on, had too many kids by the time, like, you know, I educate formal education, like wasn't a thing, let alone to advanced, advanced degrees. So like, I think about that too, when we think about healing, you know, trauma and, and all of that. Yeah. Love that. Love it. Well, thank you so much. I want to make sure that folks know like where to find you, if they want to connect with you and find you on social media and all that good stuff. So you want to share your, your info? Sure. Absolutely. So, um, where am I? Okay. So the main place that I hang out is Instagram and I am the dot mindful dietitian. About uh, 12 months ago now, my Instagram account was hacked. And actually, Anna was one of the people who tried to help me get it back. I had a, um, a relatively large audience and then just literally overnight, they just like disappeared. Yeah, that was annoying slash actually liberating because I was able to I tell you what it was because what it helped me to do is to really get clear on what, how I wanted to show up and because I had um, I'd have had I don't know 50 or 60,000 people I definitely found that that came with a certain pressure to show up and perform in certain ways and I was like well now I get to do whatever I want so I just kind of started again and it feels so much better now honestly it feels way way better um and I'm still tripping across people that I'm like oh whoops I didn't refollow them and (laughs) oopsie um but now Teresa I don't know about you but I'm really enjoying threads I am you know three days into threads the new you know ugh I really don't like Meta. I really don't like giving Mark Zuckerberg more of my attention, time and money. But I am going into threads with the intention of keeping it light. Keep it light. Um, I'm not going to mimic Instagram. So Instagram is where you'll see all of my kind of um, body image, eating disorder, recovery, kind of um messages for dietitians and health professionals unpack your own unpack your own crap type of (laughs) that kind of messaging (laughs) you know um yeah i'm keeping it light on threads and then i have quite a big uh, facebook group of dietitians and health professionals called the mindful dietitian which is a closed group and we have all kinds of weird and wonderful conversations over there about you know doing our own work in this space both both literally both literally and figuratively um and then my website is themindfuldietitian.com.au and that's where all the, the my business stuff is, you know, my training and education and supervision and um, blogs, new and old, um, podcasts, new and old. My podcast, as you know, as you know, Teresa, from our, our first conversations, my podcast is on hiatus at the moment. I, um, yeah, I just lost my mojo a little bit on, on the podcast and I've had so much fun with you here today that, um, I'm thinking maybe I might re re unearth it. We'll see. We will watch this. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll come be on your podcast. I'm glad yes. I inspired you a little. <laughs> I insist. I, I will insist on that. Definitely. Thank you so much for your time um, and for joining us here on the Dr. MC Self-Care Cabaret Podcast. You're welcome, Teresa. It was such a pleasure. We covered a lot of ground in this amazing conversation and fun really is the best way to practice self-care. I love that. I can't believe it took over 60 episodes for someone to say that. (laughs) And I enjoy how Fiona explained mindfulness and mindful eating. Remember, the key isn't just tuning in to the present moment, but staying there. That's where the magic happens. And diet culture being compared to a magic eye, that was a great analogy. Does anybody else remember what those are? Thanks so much for listening. I hope you feel more energized and empowered. If you like what you heard here today, subscribe and leave a review for this podcast on your preferred platform and follow along on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. MC Self-Care and Dr. MC's Self-Care Cabaret on LinkedIn. You can also visit my website, drmcselfcare.com for the latest updates and to sign up for Cast Party, my e-newsletter. 
And if you're interested in having me present to an audience near you, email info at drmcselfcare.com. Thanks again. Stay well and do good. Fun. Yeah. And Threads is cool. I don't know. I'm I mean, everybody's new to it, but I got on right on hopped right on that bandwagon. I'm not really sure what I'm what I'm going to do with it. And we'll see kind of how it's um, how it plays out and if it sticks around. But um, it's so far, it does feel a little refreshing um, to be on there. It feels a little lighter. Like I, yeah. I had a, I had a really bad breakup with Twitter, like really bad. You know, if I, I was thinking the other day about, you know, if social media was relationships, then Facebook and I have been steady, steady as you go, um, for many years. Facebook and I are good, like we're good. I don't go on a lot of dates with Facebook, like you know, once a month I'll go and post or whatever. Um, but it's light and breezy and fun and holidays and family and, you know, all that kind of life stuff. Uh, I don't get too heavy on Facebook. And then, um, Instagram is really where I let loose. Like I'll really like something's annoying me, (laughs) making me upset. Um, or I feel very passionate about something. It goes straight on Instagram, you know, where we can get some really good juicy conversation going. But then on threads is I'm like, well, a lot of people on threads are colleagues or people who I don't know personally, but, but I feel like I've been really enjoying kind of getting to know people who I follow, who I don't know personally, just on a little bit more of a personal level, like where there's been a lot of humor, there's been a lot of conversation, just a lot more lightness and actually really like it because, and I told you from, from, even just from a business perspective, when I, when I get to know somebody a little bit better, um, I don't mean, I don't mean their personal business as in, you know, their cat and dog's name or anything. I don't mean that, but just more, a little bit more depth, a little bit more personality. I'm much more likely to then buy from them much more likely, you know? And so I'm like, well, I feel, I feel like I've got some funny things to say, (laughs) 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 you know, and, and I think it's just a really, one of my passions is connection. It is, I love just connecting with people. So I'm like, oh, well, threads, keep it light and breezy. Nice. Yeah. Well, I'll be sure if we're not already connected, I'll make sure that we are on threads. I'm, I know we're I'm sure we probably are. <laughs> in other platforms.